0: Welcome to the Ecobot Podcast, where we dive into what matters most for 21st century wetland scientists and continue on our journey in respect to the convergence of wetland science and technology. I'm your host, Jeremy Shavey, and on today's episode, we'll hear further from our panelists from episode 17, Ryan Gay with the Wittenton Group, Bill Van Sickle from St. John's River Water Management District. Jeremiah Johnson from Esri, Caitlin Berg from GHA, and Marinus Boone from Paddle Delmore Partners, as they each answer questions about drone technology and wetland mitigation banking, as well as delineations and assessments. Let's get right to the questions.
1: What are the scenarios that folks should keep in mind as opportunities for drones to supplement wetland delineations, assessments and monitoring?
2: Okay, that's quite a big question. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, that's quite a difficult one. So I think the big opportunity is um, if you use drones is, I think people underestimate what you can abstract from the imagery. There's so much more that you can abstract. The further I delved over the years I found you, only, you have the structural information, which you get from the 3D, but you also have the high resolution um, up to a few centimeters or even under a centimeter resolution imagery. Then you can take those different spectral, um, even from a, a Phantom 4 Pro, you could use a visual different vegetation index, for example, and you can see which is all the green vegetation, which is a shoreline, which is an open water body. Um, then you go to multispectral, then you have your NDVI and all your... rest which is quite well used in agriculture um, which is i think unutilized for wetlands and um, the the agricultural field really opened that up and i think a lot of the ideas that i got is from from the agricultural side of things and said hey yes you can apply it to to wetlands as well Um, and then in terms of if you do delineation and classification of your wetlands the 3d information is fairly valuable you People people are familiar with a longitudinal profile will tell you what, what landscape position the wetland is. So you've got high-resolution digital surface model um, to help with that. And then you can go a bit further by um, by changing, um, taking the point cloud data or the high-resolution DSM. it give you information of the structure of the vegetation. You could even delineate certain vegetation species. species. I know, for example, with pragmatis, you could easily determine them from lower growing species by just calculating the drift differences. Um, so it's it's really an open world and I think it's um, for us for, to take and exploit the data basically. Um, I know the data can be quite enormous. The size of drone data is just so big you, you can extract endless data which we have to draw the line but I think there's simple methods and easy ways to um, extract more information and which will help our Uh, make our field work less. I know budgets is sometimes stressed a lot and the more time you spend on the field, but I think it would never replace field work in a combination. It's a perfect tool for wetland specialists.
1: Thank you. Uh, That that definitely is a a lot of insight to consider. Caitlin, uh, how about your thoughts on on, uh, scenarios that drones uh, can be um, pop into mind to supplement uh, delineations, assessments, and monitoring?
3: yeah i think that there's a lot of opportunity even that i'm not tapping into yet and i've just learned a lot just now but it i mean honestly just the photography aspect of it has been very helpful to supplement my delineations you know like a lot of a lot of folks are saying you can really get such accuracy with these photographs that you can zoom in and see what type of vegetation is there and i don't think that you know actually getting boots on the ground can be entirely replaced by that, but I think it gives you a really good um, initial idea of you know, what type of vegetation is there, possibly the quality of the wetland, the type of hydrology that you might find there and possible hydrologic connections between wetlands and, um, and it, it kind of speeds up your boots on the ground process.
1: Thank you. Uh, and, and finally, Ryan, do you have any thoughts to add on this one? yeah i think caitlin and Meredith kind of covered it all i mean but to kind of add to what caitlin was saying and i think what jeremy's going to follow up with is i don't think you know from from a uh, regulatory perspective i don't think drones will ever replace boots on the ground just because you know you're, you can't you can't get a soil profile with a drone it's just it's impossible because you know as far as applications for <laughs> different other types of projects you know some of these permits that are, they get issued, like I said, they require a five-year monitoring program and, you know, drones would be a great factor and a great tool for those types of projects and just overall collecting, you know, imagery for, um, like Caitlin was saying, just supplemental to what you're already doing. It just creates a better product all the way around.
0: Great. Thank you. So we've had several questions coming in asking about how to work around uh, heavy density of tree cover or uh, you know shrub, sapling cover in wetlands, and you know there's some curiosity of whether there are any any other ways of working around some of those obstructions. Uh, one person in particular, this is from Claudia, asking whether you know there's a way to work around it without using lidar. So. Maybe uh maybe I'm gonna jump out jump out to the bay and ask ask Jeremiah to maybe first handle that question if you wouldn't mind.
4: Yeah, I mean the vegetation is always going to be um something to think about when when planning flights. The way that the orthomosaics and three D point clouds are created is uh, from structure for motion. So it's using what the camera sees and what the camera uh, collects to, to reconstruct. And so it's, it's very different than than LIDAR where you can actually get points through a canopy for for example. So with that limitation in mind, um, some flight planning um, uh, steps can be created to, to limit the effects of this vegetation. And one that I use is using a, what we call a crosshatch flight plan. So in uh, an area survey, is more of like a you fly at 200 feet, 400 feet, with the camera pointed nadir or straight down. Um, But a crosshatch flight is where you fly. uh, The flight plan creates a north, south, east, west pattern with the camera pointed oblique instead of nadir. And what this helps you in some instances be able to get and look down into a canopy versus just looking from the top straight down. Um, And especially depending on your your vegetation height, um, sometimes you can fly a little bit lower to try to optimize um, that oblique data capture. And that, that's the way that I've minimized um, some of the effects of highly dense vegetation. But regardless, it always is going to be somewhat of an issue when you're using photographs to reconstruct. Yeah, and
0: uh, so Marinus, I'd love to hear from from your side on that as well.
2: So I've done some studies, for example, where you take um, maybe a fixed wing versus a multi rotor, And there is differences in vegetation. The biggest differences was they all have different flight speeds where a multirotor can go a bit slower. A fixed wing can only fly as slow as <laughs> slow as it's allowed. Otherwise it's not flying. Um, and then the amount of angles that you have to reconstruct your finding the tie points is fairly different. And then sometimes your, your Z value the height information is is definitely reconstructed. So the, the workaround that Jeremiah proposed is probably one of, one of the best ways to do that. Um, but if you if your object of study is vegetation, maybe then you will rather use a a, a multi rotor, which flying speed is maybe different and maybe increase your overlap, um, because as soon as your overlap and the amount of angles that your camera is basically the same, so seeing because it's what you see with your eyes, it reduces those reconstruction um, quality of 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 the output of of the image.
0: Okay if anyone is aware of any constructed wetlands monitoring projects, utilizing drones to determine percent vegetative cover. And uh, Bill, since you're working with such a huge management area, would you be willing to put a plug in there?
5: Well, uh, I would start by backing up just a teensy bit and saying that uh, when you're thinking about getting below the canopy information, it might be worthwhile to recognize that, uh, you know, we're building LIDAR data sets. The state of Florida, for instance, is doing a statewide LIDAR data set. So we don't have this weird patchwork of counties and communities. And then having that that ground level is not gonna change significantly. And so then we can fly subsequent overflights and fl- and subtract the VEG off of the LIDAR in case one and subject it off the LIDAR in case two. And as a matter of fact, we can even use the LIDAR data in areas where you have bare ground to sort of create virtual ground control points. So for instance, if you have an intersection of two trails, and if those trails haven't been managed very heavily or, or eroded very uh, very much after the most recent LIDAR flight, you can use that to, to then nail things down to the ground. And we use that for a scrub jay habitat study that we did where the altitude of vegetation was important. So now, getting back to the question that Jeremy just asked, um, you know, the simple answer to me is that you certainly can, can fly the same area at multiple seasons and same season multiple years, right? That's really straightforward as far as documenting, but then turning that documentation into actionable data is kind of your next challenge. And honestly, I think that the the European Space Agency data that's, you know, it's very coarse, it's like 10 meter uh, pixel size, 10 to 20, but you're getting revisits every five or six days, right? And if you can supplement something like that with this, a drone, what my uh, colleague Kim Ponzio calls drone truthing, then you can sort of say, okay, well, I know that it's like a paint by number set, right? Where this is, that's a one. I don't know what a one is, but that's a one. And here's a two, and here's a three, and here's a four. And then you go out and fly those areas uh, with the drone and get a sense of what the one really is and what the two really is and what the three really is and connect those two. I'd like to see more of that happen. Um, we're not there yet, but but I I have no doubt that we're going to get there. And then going back even further to what Ryan was saying, I suspect that although boots on the ground may never be entirely replaced, boots on the ground versus don't get around to it sometimes happens, right? And so, so, you know, almost as good as boots on the ground versus no boots, no ground, you know, it's a better alternative when you're strapped for, you know, for regulatory staff and you really just need to get some sense of what's going on there. So those are a little pile of answers, I think. Great.
0: So so Bill, I'm gonna go ahead and keep you on the on the on the mic here for a second because there's been a few questions coming in asking about whether anyone has used some of the data coming in from from drones for creating 3D models and what those might look like in respect to wetlands mapping or monitoring.
4: Obviously with, with with wetlands, 3D is very important because you're trying to figure out, you know, hydrologically. What the what the site is going to be be doing, and and sometimes, um, which is an instance that um, that I ran into just collecting some sample data, when you get out to a site, it, it isn't always wet. Um, when I when I was looking at it, it's just a sample site to go and, and 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 collect some sample data just for this presentation, uh, I kind of looked around wetlands on a Google Maps, and I went out to a site and it looked bone dry. It was just a cow field, and it wasn't until we pulled the three D Um, that i could see you know where the water would pool depending on the season uh, where the water would be coming from and where it would be going out to um, if it did get um, up above a certain level and i could see you know old levees and things that were that were put into place many many years ago to help with an old you know farmhouse that was that just happened to be on the site and i I think that just looking at an orthomosaic uh, you wouldn't be able to to get that information Um, we were talking about you know some of this scouting that Caitlin was talking about going out and scouting before you get out on site 3d features like that is very important to understand before you go out just so you know what you're what you're going to be coming across when you're in the field
5: again you know if you have some features out here that you can nail down to the ground using uh, lidar data then then you can you can get it nailed down pretty well otherwise it's just floating in space and uh, and so you can't take measurements from it you can only visualize it We also did a a project with a survey where we took three miles of levee and uh, uh, developed that into a 3D model. We got a whole bunch of uh, survey done along the levee center line and along an adjacent roadway. And we were able to determine uh, where the levee was skinny and where it was low, which are two things you don't really want the levee to be near you. And uh, and so we were able to identify low and skinny areas within about a half a foot relative to lidar. So, but but we talked to the Corps of Engineers about accepting that as a you know fake boots on the ground, and they weren't very happy with it. So, it uh, looks like that synthetic aperture inf- interferomic radar, our interferometric radar, is actually able to tell to discern millimeters of vertical change over time on levees. And that's a that's going to be way more promising. So we'll we'll defer to that approach. Corps of engineers won't accept that either yet, but you know, they'll get there eventually.
0: Great. Well thank you, Bill. So I want to kind of wrap us off here with a couple of kind of more high-level questions. Uh, there was a question in response to it, how difficult is it to obtain your uh FAA 107 license for flying drones. So maybe, uh, maybe I'll jump over to Ryan to kick us off for that one.
1: Depends on how much time you want to put into it. <laughs> uh, for me, uh, I used an online resource and there, there are a ton of great uh, online resources and courses you can take online. I dove into it pretty hard and heavy for about three days and scheduled my tests at, the, at, the, at a local testing center. And went and uh, scored, I think, of ninety-five percent on the test. And I mean, it was, it, I mean, it was relatively easy. It's not that hard. Um, you just have to put the time into studying and and you know knowing the material and uh, and going and taking the test. But I mean, as far as the red tape behind it, it, it's it's fairly easy process.
5: That was just about the easiest part of the experience for me. The hard part is writing all these protocols and right, uh, you know, getting getting your risk management people on board, they're like, oh my God, you're going to blow something up. You know, it's, uh, (laughs) you know, writing all the, all the stuff, trying to create a program, trying to create an organizational culture of safety. Those are all the challenging bits. And uh, you know, that's, that's what takes the most of the effort in my view.
0: Great. Thanks, Bill. So why don't, why don't, uh, one of the other really high level questions that came in is, what type of drone should I buy? So you know, Bill, you gave a nice up, you know breakout of you know looking at uh, fixed wings versus you know quadcopters, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like most people on here, including myself, are using quadcopters. You know, I shared a
5: story with you earlier about that. That uh, when a buddy of mine asked me what sort of uh, mountain bike he should buy for his first mountain bike, I right. said, "Go to Walmart, get the cheapest one you can get." And just make a mess out of it for six months, right? <laughs> and then you'll know exactly what you're looking for in your next one. And I would right. the same thing. I would say that Phantom Four is a is a hard thing to to top for the price point and the ease of use. And it looks kind of cute and and unassuming, where it doesn't look like a Raptor like the Inspire One does, right? And uh, you know, it's I can't do much better than that really for for the price point.
0: Great, Caitlin. How did you decide which drone you were gonna bring, bring to, to the office?
3: I honestly can't remember how we decided. I mean, we definitely did some research, and I think that's the Phantom 4 was just the one that fit our price range. We're looking at the Mavic now, I believe, Just, and I'm not really sure the differences between those two, but um, I can tell you that the Phantom is really easy to fly. It practically flies itself. It launches by itself. You know, You don't have to manually do anything. You can send it home when you're ready to to be done with it. So, but previously we used a Phantom Two, which was a little bit more manual. And that one has been crashed a couple of times. (laughs) But um, yeah, if you're just starting off learning, maybe buy a used cheap drone from somebody that doesn't matter if you crashed into a wetland. That's what I would recommend.
0: Well, so let's, let's flip over to the mosaic side of it to wrap us up. So Jeremiah, you know, when you're thinking about people bringing data into site scan or whatever other types of mosaicing they're using to put together their imagery um, do you you know what's what's your way in on the, the types
4: the, the are the types of drones or the types of data
0: types types of drones yeah
4: okay yeah um, I just wanted to echo the the phantom 4 pro it that's that's the workhorse um, some of the reasons why is um, that uh, it's a very it's it's portable, so you can put it on a case and put it on uh, the overhead of an airplane. I like the cute comment. I agree. So as somebody who goes out and and has flown drones a lot, when you have the bigger, more scarier-looking drones, it tends you tend to have people coming up to you and and talking to you, whether they're just curious about it or or, or they don't want you flying it <laughs> around. But the cuter drones tend not to have that um, that response from from the general public, but. Um, the Mavic 2 Pro is my personal favorite drone just because of how small it is. It, it folds up. You can literally just put it in the, your jacket pocket and it has a, a really nice 20 megapixel sensor. The only thing that makes it different than the Phantom 4 Pro is that it has a rolling shutter. And that's something that I want to kind of talk about is uh, the Phantom 4 Pro is is the, it has the same 20 megapixel sensor, but it's a global shutter, meaning when it takes a photo, it's capturing that entire photo more or less at the same time. Versus the Mavic 2 Pro, 20 megapixel sensor, but it has a rolling shutter. So what that means is it's capturing the each each line of the image over time. So it's it's rolling through the through the photo. And what this means is that as the drone is flying, you have a moving sensor that's capturing uh, image at a at a rolling rate. And you're actually going to get the human eye can't really perceive it, but you're going to get some squishing in the data, similar to if you. Um, hold your cell phone camera out of the moving car you're going to see like the telephone poles leaned over that's one of the the effects that you'll, you'll get and if you're looking at you know centimeter grade precision sometimes that rolling shutter will will reduce that accuracy a bit and that's really the only uh, downside to the Mavic 2 Pro is that rolling shutter but you know like I said it is my favorite drone just because of the portability um, the, the Phantom 4 and the Mavic 2 have similar flight times and so Um, It's just the the more accurate precision of the sensor is kind of the really the defining factor.
0: Thank you for listening to the ECOBOT podcast. If you like what you heard, take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. If you'd like to learn more about how ECOBOT is helping transform the industry and to see what we can do to help your company, you can find us at www.ecobot.com ecobotapp.com. I'm Jeremy Shafee, and I will see you next time on the Ecobot Podcast.